This is the FCB Radio Network, home of the best personalities and where real talk lives. Online at fcbradio.com. FCB. They freed us all from tyranny. Risked everything for liberty. And they thought so we would be America, land of the Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Hamilton. We've been talking a lot about what soldiers were up to, what battles were going on, and how things were going in the American Revolution. This time, we're going to see what the women were up to. My name is Allison Scatino. I am the Director of Curriculum and Instruction at the New York Historical Society, which means I get to research uh, in our museum's collections and figure out different stories that we can tell um, and uncover stuff that helps to tell those stories and share them with teachers and students. That's so neat. And I know right now you have um, something going on that's exciting about the stories of women. Yes, so I am part of a team of curriculum writers um, who are putting together a website called Women in the American Story. And we've been working on it now for four years, I think. We're headed into our fifth year. And our goal was, we know that women make up only 13% of the named people in textbooks, even though we've always been 50% of the population. Um, So our goal is to bypass textbooks, Um, and make materials that teachers can download for themselves right online and be able to slip women into their lessons that they're already teaching. And I will say, you know, I am a women's historian from way back. I was really interested in women in the Middle Ages. That's what I got my degree on. Um, But even I have been shocked and amazed by all of the really wonderful and interesting and important things women were doing that we just haven't told those stories before. Wonderful. And that's why I wanted to talk to you for this episode. Um, you know, as we're right now, we're in the, the thick of the American Revolution. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked a little bit about people like Molly Pitcher, who, you know, we know that there's a little more legend maybe to some of those stories, <laughs> in fact. Um, you know, so we've talked about about a few women who really, you know, stand out. But we want to talk a little bit more about, like you said, just the that American experience. You know, what what were women going through? Were they Were they holding things down back home? I know some were traveling with the army. What was going on? Sure. So I think the first and most important thing that I've had to learn about the American Revolution is to really think of it as there was no safe place in all of the American colonies. All of the colonies were at war. So even if you weren't, you know, following along, one of the camp followers who's going along with the armies and traveling with them and going to battlefields, um, the cities were being besieged or had, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember what the name for it is, when the ships, oh, blockades in the harbors mm-hmm. so they couldn't have shipping come in. Um, various farms and outlying areas were constantly being raided by arm, both sides of the army uh, or of the fight who were looking for food and supplies that they needed to be able to continue their marches. So when we think about women in the American Revolution, we have to sort of start with, every single person was living in a war zone during that time period. So even if 
you wanted nothing to do with the American Revolution. It was affecting your life in really serious ways. Um, so that said, what were women doing? All sorts of stuff. <laughs> sure. You mentioned that there are camp followers. So there are thousands of women um, who, for a variety of reasons, sort of drop everything and decide to um, continue on with the armies. In our Women in the American Story curriculum, we have the story of a woman called Margaret Corbin. And she's really typical of camp followers in that she just didn't have a lot to stay home for when her husband packed up and left. Um, they kind of worked together on the farm. And if she stayed home and tried to work on the farm, it was going to be really hard to make ends meet. Um, they didn't have any children. So he left and she just packed along and went with him and earned a living wage while she did laundry and cooking and all that sort of stuff. Um, she ends up her husband is killed in the Battle of Fort Washington, and she's right by his side helping to take care of the cannon that he's a part of. And she takes over the cannon when he is shot um, and rains cannonballs down on the Hessians um, and eventually is herself injured. She's shot mm. in the arm. Uh, she's recovered after the battle by the British who sort of patch her up um, and is one of the only women who receives a, um, she gets a maintenance from, from the oh. U.S. government, basically. Um, she's given money for her retirement in uh, light yeah. of this. Like a pension, maybe. Exactly. That is what <laughs> she's given a pension. Um, and she's one of the only women of the American Revolution to receive one. Um, so we have women like that who are sort of dropping everything, joining armies. Um, then we have women like Lucy Knox, um, who is the wife of Henry Knox. You might know him from very famous Fort Knox. Um, but she is staying home. They have a very, he's, you know, like a successful kind of guy. They've got a farm, they've got a family business, and somebody just needs to keep an eye on all of that and make sure that it's all running. Um, and she kind of resents it. Uh, not in a angry way, but in all of her letters to him, she's like, oh, I had to look over the account books today, or I had to meet with this person. When are you going to come home? I miss you so much. Um, so, you know, she had it fairly easy throughout the war. And even her easy experience was, you know, not a pleasant one. She didn't, she didn't particularly enjoy it. And then there is uh, also on the WAMS website, we have this poem um, written by, we think we know who it is, but we're not 100% sure. Um, but she was a woman who was living in Massachusetts. And this is really in the darkest days of the war because the American Revolution lasted a really long time. It did. Since 1775, all the way to 1783. Mm -hmm. um, and she writes this poem that's basically a cry from the heart. It ends with this, like, look, I don't care whose fault it is. Frankly, it's both everybody's fault at this point. But we really need to get this war over with. And throughout the poem she goes through, it's we can't afford food to feed our families anymore. Our husbands aren't here to grow things or to help us run businesses. Um, we are out every day along the shores, just trying to scrounge up enough food to be able to keep our kids fed and healthy. We don't have firewood to help um, keep us warm at night. Um, so her poem really kind of captures how, you know, contrary to the Lucy Knox experience, where she was like, oh, this is terrible, but also I'm mostly fine. There right. were left at home that were like, this is just terrible. We're not doing okay. And her point was, I don't care who wins at this point. I just want to see this war over so that we can go back to having it. Wow. 
So when you talk about women like Lucy Knox, who were you know, kind of um, running things back home, was that something new for women to be in those positions where they were maybe making decisions and the business taking care of the business? Was that something new? Yeah. So it's it's complicated to sort of answer that question. It's new in that women weren't supposed to do that kind of thing. And a woman like Lucy Knox, who comes from a very well, fairly wealthy family herself, who marries a man who's pretty well off, um, she was supposed to have very distinct responsibilities from her husband. And so when the war breaks out and she has to take over running the farm and that kind of stuff, that is new uh, for her. Um, and there were a lot of additional responsibilities women had to take on but women who weren't in the same financial success realm as Lucy Knox were already doing a lot of that work. They just weren't being acknowledged for it. Um, and they were doing it alongside their husbands. Um, so it's not necessarily that it was all brand new. I think what was new is that it was falling entirely off of it. And they rose to the occasion and kept it all going. And so when the American Revolution ends, there's a not huge, like a small but very vocal minority of women who are like, hey, we just proved ourselves. So what's what's going to be our place in this new nation that you're putting together? Sure. And we see that in a big way after World War II. <laughs> yes. It's way, kind way of the in the future. Story. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so did and did men see women differently after they, they saw their, they were a little more capable than maybe they thought or... Yeah, were they kind of like the boys are home now? We got yeah. This. <laughs> I think it was more of the latter. Um, and actually, there's a really good example um, with Abigail Adams and John Adams. So Abigail Adams, kind of like Lucy Knox, she's married to the upper echelon of guys running this revolution. Um, she and John have a very loving marriage. They write to each other constantly. Um, and in 1776, when she is just desperately waiting for the Continental Congress to declare independence, she writes to John, she says, have you done it yet? We can't wait. Tell us what's going to happen. And then she adds in this really interesting line where she says, so you're going to start a new country, which means you're going to have to write a whole bunch of new laws. And when you do, I want you to remember the ladies. And what she's talking about there is not that she wanted women to have the right to vote or that she thought they were going to have really strong political powers. She actually goes on to say, all men would be tyrants if they could. So she's saying in our own homes, women don't have any power. And the law makes it so all men have complete and absolute power over the women in their lives. So can you change the laws to try to make it a little easier for women who are in bad situations? And she's very quick to be like, I mean, I'm in a good situation, don't get me wrong. Um, but for women who are in bad situations, could we do something so it's easier for them to be protected and to find better lives? Um, and what's really sort of telling is when John writes that, his opening line is, he can't help but laugh. He thinks it's funny that she has this idea that women are going to get more power. And he actually says, we know better than to give up the power that we have. Like, we're not even going to give that up. Um, and so I think that was sort of the prevailing attitude. There's a small group of women who are starting to say, this isn't fair. Um, and the vast majority of men are like, what are you talking about? This is the way it's always been. <laughs> you just sure. have to get the program. <laughs> sure. 
So do, and so, I mean, Abigail Adams is of course an extraordinary example of many things. Um, <laughs> so are, do we have more examples of women who maybe found a new respect for, for themselves or their cohort? Oh, um, so there's a really great uh, woman that I've been writing about in my new unit of uh, women in the American story, which is going to be coming out in mid-November. And it's all about the early American period. So right after the revolution, there's this moment of possibility where everyone's like, wait, are we going to give Black people the right to vote? Are we going to give women the right to vote? And pretty early on, it's like, oh, nope, we're not going to do any of that. But there is this moment where people are talking about it. And there's this woman named Judith Sargent Murray. Um, and she has a very popular newspaper column. And again, like Abigail Adams, she's coming from wealth. So she has the education. She has the time. She can have a writing career. She doesn't have to worry about being out in the fields, growing the food to be able to feed her family. So I don't want to say it's only rich women that care about this, but I think in this period, it's only rich women who have the time on their hands to be out and agitating for this sort of stuff. But she writes this really great essay um, that basically makes the case when you look at small children, boys and girls, two years old, there's no difference. There's no difference between them. And yet you go 10 years after that and they're light years apart. She said, so what's happening? And she points at it's education. At two years old, we start to get boys into school. We're teaching them to read and write. We're putting them in science and geography and math and all of these things. We're taking girls, they're learning to read and write, and then they're learning how to take care of a house. They're not supposed to look at other books and read other things. And so it's not that women aren't capable of being voting citizens. It's that women aren't being allowed to learn how to be voting citizens. Yeah. Give us a good education and watch what we'll be able to do. Yeah. Um, and so she's one of those women. Mercy Otis Warren is also making noises in that way. Um, and these things are really widely read. And then just a couple years later, Mary Wollstonecraft um, is an English writer. And she writes something called The Vindication of the Rights of Women. And it's this like explosion across both uh, England and the new United States of America. But it's basically the same themes that Judith Sargent Murray was already writing about, which is we have all the capabilities. You're just keeping us from realizing our potential. Um, so it is out there, but it's a it's a small minority. But that's the seed that's going to grow into the women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did an episode a few, gosh, probably a couple months ago now, about spies during the revolution. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it seems like women being underestimated was a little bit to their advantage when it came to Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, there are women spies and they are frequently underestimated. They can easily move in and out of places. Um, but when they're caught, what they face is also really particularly gendered. So we have... Um, you know, the really famous examples of male spies, uh, Nathan Hale, who gets caught and he's like, if only I had one more lives to give for my country, um, and he gets executed, etc. Um, we have a loyalist spy, um, and she is operating in New York City, and she's caught a couple of times. Um, and the final time she's caught, she's caught by a mob, and instead of bringing her to jail and putting her on trial and having her executed the way all the male spies are. Instead, they take off all her clothes and put her in a window and make her stand in a window and publicly shame her that way oh, for gosh. a few hours and then let her go after. So 
they they are more able to be out and about and in the world and the consequences aren't bad but the consequences are also really sort of horrifyingly gendered (laughs) yeah that's yeah i don't see them uh doing that to a man that they caught no (laughs) no men did not face that particular consequence yeah that's interesting. It's interesting. Another another time that women have come up, um, you know, previous episodes was we talked a little bit about camp about medical care. And mm-hmm. I know sometimes with when it comes, especially with the camp followers, um, you know, a lot of just because care in general fell to women mm-hmm. back home, they would know remedies and things and um, be able to kind of pitch in that way, which I thought was neat. Yes, absolutely. Well, and medical care the way we understand it doesn't really exist yet. Sure. So there are doctors. They're pretty terrible at their jobs. Um, and oftentimes a doctor's like number one recourse is to bleed a patient, which is to just cut them, let some blood out. And we now know that taking blood away from a person who's already sick isn't necessarily going to help them get better in the long run. Um, and that's the official medical field. But in this time period, in the colonial era, into early America, there's a sort of parallel field of midwifery. And we think of midwives today as women who help women give birth. Um, So they understand the female body. They know all the tips and tricks for helping someone deliver a baby safely. But the job was much bigger in the colonial era. So they knew all of the uh, plants and natural remedies that were specific to different locations that they lived in. Um, They took care of not just women who were pregnant, but basically anyone who got hurt in their town. They knew how to cure fevers, take care of rashes, and do all that sorts of stuff. Um, And it's women who are training other women. So there is sort of this understanding that like men do real medical science, which in this period is mostly cutting people open and letting some blood out. And then women are like, oh no, I need care. Um, But what they're doing is, probably a lot more effective and most people can afford midwives but they can't afford the real medical doctors. Um, so there is sort of a general understanding that women are more of cures and therefore would take care of soldiers. But there's also really like professionally trained women out there who know how to use plants and animal parts and all of this other stuff to put together really uh, effective, not cures, but uh, symptom relief, I think, is the best sure, word for it. Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, and that gives the body the chance to heal itself, which exactly you know potentially, <laughs> which bleeding really doesn't. So. Bleeding is is not going to help, and it's probably going to give you an infection, and yep. they're not going to know what yeah. to do with that. Yeah, I think I would probably stick with the midwife if it were me. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um. So, what what do you feel like is really important? You know. To remember about a woman's experience in the revolution? Like, what is the key thing we need to remember? So, I think it's that, like, we sort of started with at the beginning, that this is a war happening in their own homes, it's happening all around them. Um, and so, women are deeply affected by every part of this war and also deeply important to every part of this war effort. But we don't necessarily we've been trained over time to think about their contributions as less than someone who is carrying a gun. But by pulling in the harvests, by taking care of their families, by keeping the businesses running, they're giving all of those soldiers who are off fighting 
war, something to come home to. Um, without their efforts, there wouldn't have been a country left by the end of this sure. war. Yeah. Um, and honestly, a lot of guys probably wouldn't have signed up to go in the first place. In fact, there's a lot of soldiers. Washington complains about this all the time. Every time it's harvest time, half of his army picks up and goes home because uh, I got to get the harvest in yeah. or there's no point to fight in this war. Um, and probably a lot more guys wouldn't have been signing up in the first place. They didn't know there was someone there to monitor things and, and make sure it was running. So their contributions are no less than those of the soldiers who are out and actively fighting. We've just been taught over time to think of them as less. Yeah. Well, that is wonderful perspective. I'm so excited to, to add this piece of the story to the puzzle. Thank you so Great. much for joining us today. You are very welcome. Women were busy during the American Revolution. There were women like Margaret Corbin, who didn't really have much to stay home for, so she worked as a camp follower, earning a wage, even helping run the cannon after her husband was killed in war. She was considered such an important part of the revolution that she even earned a pension. Then there were women like Lucy Knox. As a wealthy woman, she never expected that she would have to help run the family business or keep the farm going, and definitely wasn't her favorite thing. There were a lot of women who had been doing this kind of work before helping their husbands run a store or a farm. The wealthy women like Lucy Knox certainly weren't, but others were, and they had the help of their husbands. With the husbands gone to war, this was a big difference. And it's important to remember that a lot of men probably wouldn't have volunteered for the American army if they didn't know that their wives could handle things back at home. George Washington had enough of a problem of men going home to help with the harvest. A lot would never have come at all, but it sure wasn't easy. As we know from that poem by a woman in Massachusetts, people just wanted the war to end. They couldn't afford food, their husbands were gone so they couldn't help with the work, there was no firewood. People just wanted their lives to get back to normal again. And then after the revolution, women felt that they had proven themselves. They kept things running smoothly so that the men could fight in the army and win our independence. Women like Abigail Adams asked her husband to remember the ladies when creating a new country. It would sure take a little bit longer for women to get the same rights as men, but we got there. Be sure to visit GrowingPatriots.com for links to the New York Historical Society and their Women in the American Story exhibit. You'll see so many other cool women to learn about. You'll also see the Growing Patriot books and find resources like videos and coloring pages for this episode and every episode. Until next time. all from tyranny we stand with things for liberty and they fought so we would be america land of the free distributed by fcb radio network